Hello, everyone. This is Robert Gowan. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And on the show this evening, we've got uh, the crew all together. We've got Kat Kaylin on the line. We've got uh, Susan Deo, Rudy Lindsay, and Scott Kinder. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. What's up? What's up? So we're, we're, tonight we're going to be uh, we're going to be really hitting on a good conversation or a good topic because uh, compensation is one of those things I think everybody runs into one day or the other uh, whether you're changing careers or you're coming off of active duty. So within most organizations, determining the compensation for positions within a company is a little bit more scientific than some might think. Uh, there are large consulting firms that really do the study on the job market, competitive landscape, compensation and incentives, and they provide reports based on those findings that they call benchmarking reports. Those benchmarking reports, they then uh, usually sell out to human resources, compensations organizations. You know, really when the average person tries to go out there and determine what the compensation package or their value is to an organization, it can be quite challenging so what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about that, how it's determined, how you might be able to navigate through some of that to find your compensation range and value based on your skills and experience and what you're bringing to the market, whether you're transitioning off active duty or you're changing careers at this time as a veteran. This conversation is really about something that we hit on frequently or people ask us a lot about. And usually it's, it's about the value that they, uh, they bring to the table, and they always ask us how, the, how do they uh, kind of go about determining that. And, Scott, I know you've run into that a lot of, on occasions as well. I have, not only in the U.S., but internationally as well, because there's a misperception amongst the military community that this decade of war that we've been at somehow equates to civilian value on the corporate side of the house and that, you know, a combat badge or an award equates to a, a job offer. And I mean, somewhat tongue in, tongue in cheek, and, and I'm certainly not meaning to offend anybody, but there's, to me, there's a market difference in the 10 years that we've been at, and, and Rudy's going to touch on defense contracting and everything else, but there's this inflated sense of worth, whether that worth comes with a tab or an award or a, a, a rank and a title that you held when, when you last left. Um, and it's painful a lot of times to try and educate the military community as a whole that, you know, airborne school is a marketable skill set, but it's not a valuable skill set, right, to most civilian employees unless you're going to start a skydiving company. So, so I think that my passion in today's podcast is, is all about trying to help educate. And it's not just for the military as well, right? It's that we have this newly found entitlement belief system resident within many of, a, of an entire generation that thinks that we're entitled to X or Y and, and without having to put in the work and having been an, an entrepreneur for the past three years. And, you know, I often jokingly say that being an entrepreneur is worse than combat because it's so many more unknowns and, and known unknowns and Murphy's alive and well, et cetera. So, so I just want to kind of have today to talk both academically on, on the points that you're going to bring up, Robert, on ERP and everything else, and also talk, you know, just kind of pragmatically about the, the misperceptions and then just do a survey to the veteran community as a whole saying this is actually how you can better help yourself and, and truly mentor them in their job hunts and career transitioning processes. Yeah, and I think that what I hope to bring too is, as you mentioned, you're going to bring kind of the transitional veteran perspective. Rudy's going to bring the DOD perspective and, and I'm going to kind of try to hit it from the corporate private sector compensation side of it, of how they do some of the evaluation. And as a hiring manager, having been one of those and having to understand what you have to do and placing those positions out there to the job market and what uh, typically human resources and compensation want you to do beforehand. 
So we'll, we're going to hit it from many different angles. And then, of course, you've got Susan and Kat that are going to bring it more from their own experiences and having to make the transition as well as career change after having left the military for a number of years. How do you still go about finding that information? So we hope to hit all of those aspects and give you the answers to that. But certainly for those coming off active duty, you know, I, I think it's truly about, like you said, Scott, trying to understand what it is that you bring to the the marketplace. What's your value? So in a lot of cases, you have individuals that believe that they have 15, 20 years worth of experience that they're bringing to the table. They've got all the schools and training they've attended, whether that's through advanced courses or uh, the basic courses through the military. And then uh, they feel that there's a certain value. I know I've even heard people say, why do you need an MBA if you can just get somebody with military experience? So I think it's there's this you know, reality, uh, a sense of reality that needs to come into play when someone's coming off active duty. And we've touched on it a thousand times through all previous shows, right? We've t- the whole show, Lost in Translation, you know, Susan's show was all about, you know, translating resumes and, and skill sets and understanding this. And, and to me, it's just that dichotomy of valued, valuable and marketable, right? Like, you know, it, people 20 years in the military is going to teach you a hell of a lot of lessons. And if you're in any staff non-commissioned officer role or a senior non-commissioned officer field grade officer, senior officer, whatever that rank is when, when you leave, you've got an amazing rucksack full of experiences and tools that you will bring to the corporate marketplace that are both marketable and valuable, and yet we don't do any type of service in, in our TAP, you know, transition assistance programs, or just in public knowledge and dissemination of information. We don't teach people how to say, I was a, a field grade officer. I was I was a Marine major, so I had this many Marines under my command and these sub-duties, right? We all understand specified and implied tasks and all this military speak, et cetera, but we don't translate that into how we can take specified and implied tasks and actually show the value of that experience, right? There you go. We, we, we think that people just believe that we have it. You know, and, and certainly there's sometimes, right, Navy SEAL is a highly marketable term, right? If you say that you were a SEAL, you get all sorts of extra credibility in, in many marketplaces, right? Marine has a lot of credibility. And, and I tried to talk to Wyrick about that as well, right? Did you come into any instances to where, you know, having that title of Marine, Lieutenant Colonel has a lot of, you know, entitlements and, and beliefs. Of the, well, Master Sergeant has a lot. Of, you know, there's a lot of good terminology that we bring when we retire, right? Special Operations, Special Forces, all this stuff, Ranger, all airborne, all these things have name recognition in the civilian communities, and yet we don't turn the corner and actually tell people how to monetize that and understand their operation, their new operational environment, so that they can monetize that information and make the most money, I, get the best bonuses. I think there is, if, if you're going into the exact same career field that you were in in the, in the uh, military, so if you are a, you know, a medic or something and you're going into being an EMT, there's translatable skills. However, if you're in combat arms or infantry, you know, armor, artillery or something like that, and you're going into the private sector, you're going to have to find unique qualifiers or unique ways to demonstrate your value outside of those skill sets that you, you bring to the table, for sure. So I think there are some that are easily in, in, uh, easily translatable, and there are applications, and there are websites and stuff out there uh, in organizations as well that will be more than happy to sit down with you and try to translate your skills uh, but when it gets more into, well, how does that translate then into dollars and cents? That's where it becomes 
the more challenging factor. You've got to be able to benchmark that or match it against a benchmark study or analysis so that you can really see your value there. I'll add one word to that. What's the first? Go ahead, Scott. Sorry, Rudy. One word, and and I think you nailed it, Robert, and it's a realistic value and a realistic, you know, because we have this inflated sense, right? And that's the only word that I would change in in what you just said was you're you're absolutely right. There are firms that do this. There are people that do this, organizations that do this. But yet we still have this unrealistic expectation in our heads of what we're worth outside of that. And so that's where you just got to temper, you know, reality. Sorry to interrupt you, Rudy. No, no, you're good. I was going to say exactly right. But we need to, that sense of reality, we need to, I think the first step in, in part of your transition plan, and we've hit on these in other shows, is determining what is realistic, first off. You know, uh, because how you articulate your skills, whether it's uh, character traits, whether it's actual technical skills, uh, leadership qualities, whatever it is, it, it, and you can find a successful way to articulate that to the company that you're, you're, you're seeking employment with, what I think the first step you have to do, though, is is assess what is a reasonable, realistic uh, value or, or, or a payment, you know, if you will. Um, is it a, is it 100k a year? Is it 200k a year? 500k a year? What is that reasonable dollar amount? Um, and and something I'd like to get into a little bit. What we can do it a little bit later is is it's also not just dollars though. You know, there's a lot of other things that that companies uh, can compensate you with outside of absolutely a, a dollar amount. Yeah, um, and and I want to get I into that on people, especially retirees. Right? They say, "Well, I want to do this when I get out, and I want to start this career, and I want to do this." Yeah. I'm going. You realize you're going back to 80-hour work weeks minimal, and you know there is no. You know, first of all, it's all knowledge work nowadays, so there is no yeah. real nine-to-five workplace. If you're lucky enough to have a, a nine-to-five job with an hour-long lunch break and whatever, then hold on to that thing because those are going away. The dinosaur are like real quick, right? If you don't have the knowledge and the ability to understand what you want, and being a retiree, go well. I'm 45 years old. I don't really want to start over from scratch. I don't really want to have an 80-hour work week. And so you have to temper that reality and that expectations with what you desire in that post-career transition. The, re- the reality, though, starts with your transition preparation, right? The longer the runway, the better. Because right. yep. if you don't trans, you know, if you don't prep your transition the best way, then you're going to see yourself being off of active duty rather quickly and then the only thing that's going to matter to you is dollar signs and that will you know making sure that you get the right paycheck so that you can continue to pay your bills and raise your children is going to stop you from getting all of the other things that are in the compensation package that you might figure out later that you really wanted but it's too late now because you didn't try to get it when you got hired on more of the lower enlisted you're going to see a lot of guys and gals getting out at like E6, E7 that haven't prepared. And they do come into this mentality of in the civilian sector that yes, they should be making such and such amount of money. They were in charge of so many soldiers. But the problem is, is that they can't, I guess, come off of their pedestal and actually relearn the trade again. So you might have a, a truck driver or a medic or whatnot, but the civilian mindset is so different that when these soldiers do come into the civilian job, they're dealing with an entire different breed of people and coming across as 
uh, yeah, I was in the military, I did all this, I was in charge of so many people. They don't care about that. They want to make sure that you have the talent and you're going to make money for that company. And I think that's where a lot of uh, soldiers, Marines, just service members really lose sight of it. Well, in some cases, some of those jobs or careers that you just mentioned are also going to have to have certifications that are not going to be transferable from the military to the private sector. So if you're going as an EMT, you're still going to have to be certified. If you're going as a truck driver, you're still going to have to get certified You know, with a commercial driver's license and maybe some other tests. Uh, they go along with that to prove that you they have those skills and talents that so it's not like you walk out and here's your card here's your you know you you can jump right into those things so there's a preparation aspect of it there's understanding your value and then there's a pecking order that may come into it as well so you may find that you know you don't really get as high a level as you thought you were going to go into so how do you how do you ask Robert or how do you negotiate for that? Well, and that's a great uh, point. So before I get into that, because that's something I do want to talk about, it's it's really understanding how they benchmark you. So they benchmark first each individual job um, that's out there. They identify based on the you know the job title, and within that is going to have the level of responsibilities, the level of accountabilities, which is going to be much different. It could be in terms of dollars, it could be in terms of people, it could be in uh, other the resources that they manage and then it, it's going to go into levels of actions or um, responsibilities that may be monetary especially if you manage a large group of people and then you know of course revenue whether it's uh, profit or loss you're going to get greater salary so they go into all of this type of study and then there's what's also called individual contributors out there and those are the individuals that don't have any staff to manage or anything and they call those individual contributors once they put that kind of together, then they have other aspects to it. And I don't know if you guys wanted me to go into the market reference point at this, but when you're looking in, now that you know that there's a benchmark out there, what you have to first do is make sure that your job titles that you had in the military or the things that you've been doing, when you say it relates or translates well, you've got to find the job titles that match your skill sets that you're bringing to the table because if you can't find the exact match, then you may be placed in an income bracket or a compensation bracket that's higher or lower than your skill set. And if it's higher, you think, oh, that's great. Well, no, it might be that you place yourself right out of a job because you're underqualified. So you don't want to do that as well. You know, it's really important, I think, that you understand that benchmark analysis, how they get to it, how they identify those uh, that compensation that goes with it, so that you can then go out there and find your skills and values that match those specific jobs. That's a process that the companies go through. It's a, it's a formalized process that then paints a picture. It's not, you know, there's this belief in the military, I, I fully believe, that it's, they just wing it, that the corporations are going hey, we'll hire a project manager, we'll call this guy a senior project manager, and we'll just bring in anybody with X number of skill sets. That's not what they're doing. I think that the MRP the, <clears throat> is important for people to learn who are going into the private sector, and I'll use myself as an example. So I've worked for this company for almost nine years, and every year my boss tells me in my annual review that um, I'm at the, I'm less than the mid-range which is always a good thing because that means I get more pay raises. And I don't I never knew what that meant. And he's been telling me that. this every year for four years. It's good that you're below the mid-range because that means I can still give you pay raises. And it wasn't until yeah. I read Robert's notes this week that I was like, oh, now I know what he's talking about because 
I'm does, that now, mean, does that mean I should have read the notes? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let me get into that because you're kind of jumping ahead on me. So you mentioned the MRP. That's the market reference point. So what they do is based on this benchmark analysis, they go out there and they determine the market reference point. So if you think about the market for a specific job, then they determine based on those levels of responsibilities and accountabilities and such what that market what that position will bring in the marketplace. So let's just say as an example, the position X, whatever that title is, the MRP for that is $40,000. And $40,000 is the mid-range, we'll call it the mid-range or the geographical location. I'll get in the geographical part of this in a moment, but let's just say it's Ohio, Susan, because you happen to live there. So then the minimum of that salary range is typically point. 0.80 or when you take 20% off of that number, that's now your minimum salary range. So in this case, it would be $32,000. You then take and add 20% to the mid range or the minimum of that, or not the minimum, but the MRP, I'm confusing everybody I know, the $40,000, and you get the maximum salary range, which is $48,000. So position X has an MRP of $40,000 has a minimum salary range of 32, which is minus 20%, has a maximum range salary range of uh, 48, which is plus 20% of the MRP. So your range is 32 to 48,000. What an organization tries to do then is evaluate the geographical location. So geography has a lot to do with it. Obviously, if you live over in a higher cost of living area, such as, let's say, Los Angeles, New York, Jersey, someplace like that, then your salary range is going to need to be at a plus higher range to offset that difference. Typically, that's a 15% difference. So if you live in Ohio or Atlanta, you would make 40. If you live someplace like out in California, Los Angeles, or something like that, at any rate, you would want to understand those differences primarily because if you were offered a position or you saw positions that were in both Atlanta or Ohio, and one was in Los Angeles, and you think, oh, the one in Los Angeles is paying me more, you need to understand that cost of living difference that's out there. It's not that that individual gets paid more than you, it's that that cost of living difference is coming into play. Much like if you move to someplace like Mobile, Alabama, or someplace that doesn't require as much of the income, it's going to likely be 15% less than what it is, say, in Atlanta or Ohio. So taking all that in consideration, typically a company will bring you in at less than MRP. Because once you reach the 120 percentile or 20% above your MRP, most organizations have within policy that they won't give you any additional incentives or pay raises or anything beyond that point because you're kind of maxed out. So the closer you can't you negotiate that? No, it's non negotiable. It's not one of those things you negotiate. It's I thought everything could be negotiated though. No, typically not when it comes to this type of compensation because it's it's that no one's gonna bring you in at say hundred and twenty percentile first off. So everything is negotiable in the front end, you're right. But they are not gonna bring you too much beyond the MRP because then you're you're headed towards not being able to move up before you reach the maximum level. Your glass ceiling, right? Absolutely. So the idea here is if you think of it this way, Rudy, if I bring you in right below, and when it's right below, could it be anywhere between 32 and 40 if 40 is the MRP? So if if you follow along and 40 is the MRP and minimum is 32, if I brought you in, say, 36, 38, I'm giving you some room to grow. And hopefully by the time uh, with pay raises and such over a number of years – 
you won't even ever hit close to the maximum. And the reason why is because you're going to get promoted. So what this is supposed to do is bring you in at a level where I can advance you and give you incentives and stuff to to continue growing in that position. But once you reach a certain level, I'm not going to keep giving you pay raises and keep giving you pay raises because you like staying at that position, at that level. If you're not wanting to grow and everything else, well, then this is where the cap starts. And that's kind of part of the um, the reason that it's in there as well. I have a hard time. I understand what you're saying. I mean, you're, you're making sense. But me as me as an individual, I have a hard time accepting that. I just I can't I can't put a cap on myself. You know, that's just but maybe that's you're just wired differently, Rudy. I mean, yeah, yeah. but you're going to grow. You're going to yeah. go from position ABC to DEF. I mean, you're going to keep growing in, in not only levels of uh, experience, but you're the type of individual that's probably going to grow with people that you're going to manage is going to be greater, people uh, more equipment or resources and things that you're wanting to uh, risk that you're allowed to take on. Absolutely. So as you do that, you're going automatically going to get paid more. Then you go into a new MRP and a new bandwidth. So each position has its own individual MRP as you move through that. So you're automatically going to keep cruising. But Rudy, if you came out there and you go. Dude, all I want to do is be, you know, job X. That's it. I never want to go beyond that. Well, at some point, you're going to reach that glass ceiling. And if you don't want any more responsibility, you don't want any more accountabilities, well, then that's all you're going to make is gotcha, that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So it's it's meant also to somewhat to be an incentivizer uh, to, you know, incent you to want to move forward and move up. Yeah, and I need to open up my aperture a little bit too because I, you know what that that does apply to some people, you know, um, and there's nothing wrong with that uh, at all. But I mean, we need to we need all levels of people like that. So, and when it's designed correctly, it's designed to reward those who are pushing the envelope and trying to do new things and, and working their tails off, and keep in the place those who aren't, who just came to you know draw a paycheck or yeah. just just retire in place, right? So it's, when it's designed well. It works. The problem is that sometimes you get go-getters who are very hungry but aren't eligible to, to break that MRP zone until two years down the road and problem, emotions, drama, et cetera, all come into play. So, Well, and as a hiring manager, too, we get to looking at the geography. So, Susan, if you're in a facility there in Ohio and your position title is X and then as a, as a manager and as a compensation team, they'll approach me and I can't place any additional positions out there or bring one individual too high above the equity of those people within that same space that are doing that same job. So there's an equity that comes into play as well. So Susan should not be making $20,000 more or let's say maybe dollar sign is not a good example, 20 to 30% greater than somebody that has the same level of responsibilities and accountabilities and the same job title in the same geographical location. There shouldn't be that much of a divide. And if there is, that's when compensation and HR typically step in with a hiring manager and go, we've got an equity issue here we need to start working with. Either we're going to have to uh, freeze and cap off Susan uh, or we're going to have to bring the others up to their to Susan's level. And that may not be instantaneous. It may not be that that moment, but it might be there's a plan over the next three years to bring Kat, you know, Rudy and Scott up to Susan to make equity within that position and in the in that area. Yeah. That I think sense. it's important to note too that coming from the military, we all 
know what each other gets paid and we all get paid the same if you're the same rank or time and grade time and service right so everybody is equal but it's not that way in the private sector at all they don't take there's that a transparency in the military right there that is if you know that susan gets promoted from e7 to e8 you know that she gets x number of dollars and you can even say susan has 20 years of service and she got promoted here and she lives in this location so with certainty and transparency you can look at it and go Susan makes X, you know, but in the civilian world, a lot of the drama comes from the fact that there is zero transparency on that. In fact, it's highly frowned upon if you divulge yeah. your salary or information to others um, and any other benefits or whatever that you may get. Um, so, so that's where a lot of the problems lie for military members is in that absolute lack of transparency post military life. Can yes. you ask, though? No. Uh, and no, I you did. Not ask. Okay. I did, and so my, for you know, use myself as an example again. So I accidentally found out that the lady who sits next to me, who does the exact same job as me, who has worked at the same company the exact same time amount of time as me, makes more money than I do. And so when we had our annual review in December, I asked the question: Explain to me why she makes more money than me. And he was like, I can't talk to you about her paycheck. And I said, well, why not? Because you expect me to do a little bit more than her. I have a little bit more responsibility than her. I should make more money than her. And he said, that's not how it works. And you can't ask me about somebody else's paycheck. I don't know how big of a, cor a company you work for or anything, but the compensation team typically, again, is the people who are leading this effort to go to those hiring managers or to those supervisors and say, listen, you have an equity problem. Managers are supposed to recognize that right off the bat. If there is a big discrepancy like what you're describing, then typically that's There's where it comes into problem, play. There's another problem, right? Managers, the, the phrase managers are supposed to Correct. is highly problematic because, you know, that's so... You got now we're, we're identifying a bunch of problems in in the inconsistencies within the compensation plans, right? You have gossip, and you have the rumor mill, and you have the water fountain, you know, water cooler people. Then you have the management not knowing how to manage, and people who are in potential management positions that don't know how to deal with those questions and don't know that there probably are. You know, if you if he and I, I don't know. I don't know who Susan's discussing from Adam. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, so I'm not directing this at them. But if he doesn't know that he, as a manager, can take that to human resources and fight for you and do the right thing, then he just wants to sweep it under the trouble. So you know, now you've got a, a, a conflagration of issues, the gossiping and the, the drama attached to knowing that you make less but are expected more of, and then mismanagement. And that all adds to the lack of transparency and then just the confusion within the realm. I think it's important for people to know who are coming off of active duty that how you get paid and how you're compensated is completely different than what it is in the military. It's not transparent. There's formulas. There's teams that decide, you know, how much money you're going to get paid when you're hired in, and it takes a lot of research on, you know, your end to make sure that you understand what you're getting yourself into when you first ask for how much money you're going to make when you get hired. I mean, really, this way, Susan, you're retired eight. I left the military, Kat left the military, and Rudy left the military. Robert wrote the book, so he's excluded from this point, right? But of the five hosts on this podcast today, four of us are, you know, asking questions and talking, you know, like, oh, and, and hearing new terms and going, well, only when I read your book, Robert, did I understand that this was an issue or when I found out this. Years later, years down years the pipe, later. right? So there's this 
there's this feeling that everybody's just going to figure it out on the fly or that managers are going to manage or the communication is going to happen or that HR is going to do their job. And, and that's why, you know, I don't want to get on too far of a rabbit hole, Robert, and I apologize, but that's why corporate culture is is so amazing and it aids in the compensation battlefront because it is a battlefront. You know, when you see organizations like the Lampo Group and Dave Ramsey and they have utter transparency throughout it, when Zappos goes down this whole holacracy realm and has, you know, lack of titles and no more leaders and, and complete transparency, right? <clears throat> right? People crave that transparency of information and those corporate cultures, the Apples, the Googles, the ones with all the these extra benefits and stuff, or the ones that we all celebrate and go, oh man, if only we could be like that. Well, you can be, but you know that's that piece that's missing, right? That's the education of managers and the education of the staff and the education of what to know when you're negotiating. And and Robert, I'll shut up now and get you let you get back on. How do we point, how do we mitigate that, though, Scott? That's what that's what H- that's what HR. I mean, all of this really is HR's responsibility. But you can't. But my, what do we do with HR? Those, we put them yeah, in a broom it, closet and we you can't rely on only that. go to them with <laughs> sex, you know. Whatever. I think you have issues, to educate right? yourself and you have to ask the questions. And, and I, there's, a lot, I, there's a lot of questions I didn't know to ask until I read Robert's book. And then I was like, oh, yeah. I think it, it truly is educating yourself and doing all of that research prior to getting off of active duty and then making sure you ask the right questions at the right time. And when you fail, plan. when you're not proactive in that education and you go to that interview and you get that job and you get the job offer letter, then you're reactive because you feel like you have no other place to go when you're in this corner and you have to take that salary, and that's fine. You're all happy, right? Hey, I landed a job, you know, temporary happiness. I've got a job. I've got a new thing. It's new for six weeks or six months or six years, but eventually the gossip mill, mismanagement, you know, lack of communication, all that start, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. And that's when, because of the lack of preparedness and lack of proactiveness on your part, you're in that position. And it's a self-inflicted gunshot wound, though. Absolutely. That's exactly... I I wouldn't say... It would be mostly on our part. Well, it is on our part, but a lot of times we just don't know what to ask. We don't know who to ask. A lot of times our first-line leaders, they don't even know, you know, that that's part of if we were, those, our goals were set, that that's what we wanted to do, and you see yourself at that level, all of these things are foreign to new soldiers that are leaving the Army that may have had, you know, like I had 10 years and I left, but I had no idea or just until tonight to ask those type of questions. And I think it's really important. And I wish Mike was here because I'm sure he would just jump all over this, that when you are going through that, you're still at the end of your, uh, your contract and you have that little bit of free time, you know, to go to your appointments, to do your meetings, to learn about how to manage this and that. Like this information is way more important than, hey, can you balance a checkbook? Like let's, well, let's know, get soldiers you're, you're educated. exactly right. And- you stole my thunder on referencing Mike, so I'm going to back off of what you're saying now and, and, and double tap it. But, you know, I'm reading um, Ron Fry's new book uh, about Afghanistan. He talks, you know, as an officer going into battle, he knew that there were no knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, right, in a combat environment. Well, guess who else knew that? Mike Pritz is a 30-year retiring battalion-level command sergeant major. He went and networked and started asking people, right? And and again, I I keep referencing this story of Mike's, but it impressed me that much how he went about his transition. And and he actually took the feedback that people in his communities and the people that he respected gave him, and he altered his plan. Now, he altered his plan at great personal and financial cost, but he knew that in line with his greater end state that he wanted to reach, those goals that he wanted to reach. So, So my 
my, my counter argument is if you've got a guy like Mike who at 30 years is a retiring command sergeant major special forces guy and he knows to do all this stuff and he doesn't just take it for granted that he can go, get out in the civilian workforce and wing it, then that should be the role model that everybody else is doing as well, right? Get out there. Ask, you know, confirm your known knowns. Make sure your prejudices and your biases are right and make sure that all those beliefs, because I guarantee you, not all of them are. Confirm your known unknowns and talk about people about things that you know that you don't know. And then find out like, hey, one of the questions I typically ask people all the time is, what, what should I have done differently? What should I have done, you know, alternatively in, in this meeting or this engagement, right? Like, what do I, what am I not asking you? And I think and that's really, give them time. I just think it's like you said, it's just really important that that comes back to the soldier or Marine or service member mentality that you do have to humanize yourself and ask questions and get feedback and actually take that and learn from it instead of going into a position where you're like, hey, I, get, I should get this amount of money because I'm this awesome. Like, no, that's not how it works. Right guys, before the fall, so. right? No, no matter if you're, a, if you're a U.S. Marine, an Army soldier, Navy seaman, whatever it is, it's, it's pride before the fall because our pride and our ego gets in the way every single time. Yeah, so let, <clears throat> let's go into some of the things that go outside of just the, the money. For a lot of people, paid time off is really important. It depends upon the organization. That could be within the policy that everybody comes in with this many days paid time off, non-negotiable. Um, however, it's it's always good to ask. Is that something that is negotiable? You have relocation costs that may get factored in as well. So if you're you know, if you're moving cross country, an organization may be willing to pay you relocation costs as well. There's uh, merit increases that come into play. Most organizations today, because the cost of living adjustment is not moving that much in today's economy, it's typically about three to five percent uh, on an annual basis. So some organizations are not even giving uh, merit increases because the economy is not really moving that much. So because of that, uh, you may not get anything, but typical is about three to five percent unless the market is really good. Then you have bonuses. In some cases, depending upon the size of the organization, you could get up to 15% as a bonus. Not a sign-on bonus. That's something entirely different. But that could be something that's offered to you as well if the position's in demand. And certainly well, somebody... Robert, one second. Yeah. Because on that vein, I'm going to tee this one up for Rudy because I think he's going to have an embolism as soon as I say it. But early on in the GWAT, there was... A- a to-be-unnamed defense contracting firm that grew very large and very fast. Oh, yeah. And they were known for their end of year bonuses that they were given for the first, I'll be generous and say, five, six years of the global war on terror. Employees of this company would expect it and do it. All of a sudden, the GFC, the global financial <clears throat> crisis hit. This company wasn't getting as much profitability. They weren't getting to make contracts. They weren't getting whatever. And those bonuses that were historically in the several thousands of dollars range, now we're in the few hundreds of dollars range without any communication and man, you want to talk about some military people going spastic? Yeah, you got a, you got a, you got a huge problem. Too. They tanked. Is the bottom line. And, and if they didn't tank, there was very very poor uh, quality uh, retirees or veterans working for them, and that's and that's a problem that exists today. And, and there has to be a balance of the the quality with the compensation with the quality of soldier you're getting. You know, um, and not to take anything away from younger soldiers, but they lack the experience that a, a 25-year special ops veteran would have, and that's just reality. But when you when you cut the pay that dramatically that quick, uh, because you 
you probably made the company probably made a mistake to begin with offering that high of a, of a, of a bonus or salary for, for that type of work. Well, not only that, but organizational objectives change, right? This company yeah. that, that I'm referencing did very well, and but their organizational plan not communicated to all staff was that they yeah. wanted to go, like, I don't want to say legit because they were always legit, but they wanted to go the public type route. And yeah. with that, you know, it was further higher disclosure of bonuses and profits and margins and anything else. And they wanted to grow in a certain way. But again, they didn't tank. They just weren't going to communicate that all of a sudden there was a, a shift, a hard line in the sand, and a shift that went from overly generous to overly tight. Yeah. And now, it caused say, a lot of. Yeah, when I say tank, I didn't mean like went out of business. But oh, yeah. I just want to make sure because people will figure out who I'm talking to. About. Yeah, yeah. Tank meaning reputation. And reputations yeah. are, especially within the, well, I guess with any company, but it's very important within the defense contracting industry. Uh, Companies have to maintain their reputations based on their performances. And if you if you cut a, a dollar amount uh, for any type of work that dramatically that quick, you're going to lose the quality of employees and workers that you have. And when that happens, you start hurting your reputation. Once your reputation starts going down, you're out to lose a contract because you know 99% of that's contractual based. Um, hence the name defense contracting, and they and they drive their business off of individual contracts. But you know, once that reputation's damaged, man, you got to you got to recover quick or or suffer the consequences. And unfortunately, a lot they of have yeah. Yeah. yeah, in some yeah. organizations, it depends upon whether or not it's a private company versus a public company versus DOD. So we're we're trying to cover all aspects here, certainly during the compensation discussion. But bonuses are one of those things that may be framed up a little bit different depending upon whether it's a private or, or publicly traded. Another incentive that's out there that is not always given, it depends upon the size of the organization, are stock options and stock grants, especially for those organizations that are publicly traded. And there are differences between the two. Options you exercise and they're not actually real tangible stock until maybe you've reached certain thresholds and hurdles based on timelines and then you've actually exercised those. Um, I won't get into too much of the specifics, but I think I kind of go into some of this within the book, but it's about whether or not you know it, it's based on a strike point price. Then you've got the stock grants that are actual stock, but you again have to meet uh, certain thresholds. Sometimes that's time, but it's also meeting certain requirements like achieving certain results. So you have to, within your annual review, achieve those results, whether it's based on department, individual, and if those are the case, then you may have a portion of your stock grants that are given to you and those are stock that's real stock within the company as opposed to the options that are just that they're just the option to exercise so there's a big difference again i try to cover some of that i think within the book and uh, you can get into that and, and learn more about the differences depending upon the organization that you're going into but there are also other incentives that are out there so when we talk about the total compensation package for me it's it's also understanding more about you. What are, what motivates you? So, is working from home more important to you? There is you flex go. time more important to you? Is it paid time off that's more important to you? So sometimes it may not be money, but it may be you know in some other way. Working from home, man, it's a double-edged sword. It's something you got to be very careful with. You know, it's uh, a lot of considerations need to go in that. But that you know, that's something that that, that falls in the compensation category. And maybe that's what you wanted to do. You know, my story, for example, specifically, you know, that the op tempo that we, we held, what, 
13, 14 years, 14 years plus, um, was extremely high. And and for me personally, I was I was I was worn out from that man. I needed to take a break, and and uh, working from home, I was able to do that. Well, that gets back to my my point earlier about you know what do you value in your life, right? Like my wife and I, you know, same thing, Rudy. Operational tempo. We were gone. I was gone eighty percent of our marriage for the first ten plus years, right? So when we when I started the kinder group and I left federal employee, you know, we said, what do we value the most? And I said, well, I want to be a dad. And I want to I want to work from home and I want to be able to do this. So she's at a crossroads in in her potential job right now as well, to where she's looking at different potential job opportunities, but she works from home as well and has a lot of freedom of movement because she does work from home. She can take the kids to school, volunteer at their schools, do a bunch of the stuff that she really puts a value on. So we had to compare potential job offers for new careers and new jobs and new companies from her with this pseudo dollar amount attached to working from home and the lifestyle that, that we wanted with that. So that was a very real consideration and, it, and it's not all comfort, right? There's got to be a, an opportunity cost as well. What are you giving up to maintain that quality or standard of life, right? So yeah, it, like, like personally, I declined a, uh, I got offered a, a pay raise. Um, it was quite significant. Um, but with that, I had to I had to move, and that's something that I, I wasn't willing to do. But I'm in the I'm in the position, and part of my plan and part of my goals was didn't uh, align with that. So I actually declined the promotion uh, because I didn't want to live in the area that they they wanted me to move to. And um, I'm you know like I said I'm, I'm still working from home, but uh, it's but uh, that's that self awareness, right? And yeah. again, that's another buzz phrase that we've thrown around in almost every single podcast so far. You know. Listen to what we're talking about today, and this is why I love the show so much because you know we're talking education and we're talking self awareness and being proactive, not reactive, and we're talking you know solving problems and setting yourself up for success and knowing you know in Robert's words the, the runway, and we're celebrating Mike, so you know it's a win win across the board. So even though he's not here, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I get in my job is flex time. So they know that I am the unit commander of a young Marine unit and I need to leave work early on Tuesdays so I can come home, put a uniform on, make myself look like a jarhead and go be with little kids. And because of that, I work extra on other days to make up for the time that I leave early on Tuesdays, which is nice. Is that something you're obligated to, Susan, or is that something you negotiated for on the front end uh, going into that job? It, it's, it was actually, it's, it's one of the perks of the job that I do, and it's offered to everyone who does the same thing that I do. So um, it, they, they like flex time because they, they don't want us to feel like we're chained to the chair. We all sit in cubicles, and they don't want us to sit there 8 to 5 every day and just be robots. So they allow the flex time so that we can have a life outside of work and then just kind of work around our passions outside of work. You know, and some people get the luxury of both having flex time and work from home. So if you're working for an organization that says, hey, you can work from home and I actually don't care that you work the eight to five or, you know, nine to five type of role, as long as you get the work done that I'm expecting of you to do, then kind of do it at your your free time. And I, I think that it depends upon, again, the size of the organization that does that. So, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering, and I think, Rudy, you asked it earlier. So where, where does a person go to get this type of information? Where can they find out more about what their value is and what their compensation and the different types of incentives? And if you've got a recruiter that's contacting you from an organization, a company that says, 
I'm looking to bring you in within my company, ask them. If they're bringing yeah. you in or they're interested in you or they're wanting to market you for positions, they're one of the best people probably to approach this question about because they sought you out for the values and experience that you bring. And so they probably already sized you up as to how much it is that they're going to have to kind of sell you within the marketplace and which positions uh, level. And I would argue, or I'd like to add to that, that nine times out of 10, based, based on my experiences, I went through at least 10 different offers before I finally accepted one. And uh, nine times out of 10, they're going to lowball you too. So, you know, be aware of that. Yeah, and I think that depends upon your hiring manager, the guy that's bringing you in or gal as well, because I tended to try to look at what the market and what I felt like they were worth, but I'm sure they probably thought, hey, I'm trying to bring them in really low. But there are a lot of organizations that that, that kind of bugs me when they, they feel like they've got to bring you in at the lowest dollar amount that they can get you at. Then, then you may not retain those types of individuals for very long because you've already upset them in the very beginning. And I just don't agree with that. And, and that's where I go back to everything that we've talked about in, in this podcast series uh, applies to this. You go into it with a good plan and you've done your research, you understand your operational environment, you know, your worth and your value that you're bringing to the table. You should have a fairly good assessment on, or fairly good uh, accurate assessment on what you're worth dollar-wise or compensation-wise. And and you go into that, and if, if, if you're in the ballpark, then you you really need to hold your ground and kind of uh, negotiate back and forth until you get to a, a happy a happy medium that you're comfortable with. When I got recruited at the, at the federal level, when I got recruited and went to work for the U.S. government, I was negotiating, and the HR person told me, you can't negotiate, and I said, all right, whatever. <laughs> That's yeah. BS. I can negotiate. And so she said, well, I can't go. I got an extra GS level out of it, and I got a $20,000 signing bonus out of it as well. But I would play every old school, you know, George Costanza, used car salesman trick in the book, right? I would, oh, I didn't see that email. Let me let me read it, and I'll get back to you. And I would wait 48 hours and, and write them back. And, oh, I didn't, you know, I'm sorry. And I would just act like I didn't care at all when internally my wife and I were like, oh, this is our future. This is whatever. But, you know, perception is reality. And you can negotiate everything. And like I said, I got... That equated to the step, you know, or the GS level was an extra ten thousand dollars annually, twenty thousand dollar bonus, time off, retirement benefits, everything else. So, yeah, yeah it's definitely. I agree. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that everything is negotiable to a point. And you know, if, if someone is is rigid and they say absolutely not, it's it's a fact. It's non negotiable. You know that that might be the case, but then you need to reconsider. Uh, your employment with them. That sets the tone for future employment, right? right. The entire, if, again, if, if you're already, if they're, if they come up $50 on your initial offer, then you're not going to get a $10,000 bonus at the end of the year, right? Like I'm guessing because if they're that small and you can tell when interacting with people, their intent and your intent and whatever else, and I don't want to get into body language and nonverbals and all this other yeah. stuff, but when you deal with people and you're prepared and you, you've taken the right steps on a the runway then, and you've had a good mentor, Etc. 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 Self plug. Self plug. Self plug. Then you can, you know, you're actually going to get the good jobs. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when you mention everything is negotiable, I think that there are policy aspects that come into play. But you sure, can sure. again, you've got to size up. I like the way you put that, Rudy. You're when you're going to the interview process, and we didn't talk about this from the interview standpoint and how you're negotiating 
Uh, but when it comes to negotiations and the interview process, you're sizing up the culture of that organization well before you ever get to this point. Oh, yes. You should yep. be paying attention while you're walking in the door to how it is that you're being treated, how the other employees are acting to one another. Are you in Cubicle City or are you in you know, office land? Are you Quality seeing people? Of life. Are, yeah, are you seeing people that are interacting with one another? Or are you seeing them in their own little worlds, in their own little space with their earbuds in and listening to their music and tuning? out the rest of the world and they're just taking paper from one box and moving it to another are they on the phone are they you're sizing up this whole organization the incentives the compensation is one element of this and i know that's the topic for this evening but the negotiation is really about understanding too is this the culture of the company you want to fit into and when you start doing that negotiation about the incentives and about the compensation you need to then go back and think in your mind did you like every other aspect of it Something that cracks me up is when people interview for jobs with the hiring manager, but they won't interview with the person that they're going to be working directly for. So on day one, when they show up, the hiring manager walks them in. Yeah, I would demand that because because I'm the type of person that – and you know what? Here's the thing, and I can't say that it's flawless, but my mentality and my attitude about things is – you know, and I'm not going to come in cocky. I'm going to come in confident, and there's a huge difference there, but I I wouldn't even consider – working for a company without meeting face-to-face and sitting down over coffee, a beer, whatever. Uh, I mean, hell, I'll buy the lunch. It doesn't matter to me. I want to meet the guys I'm going to be working with and for before I accept it. No, I, I agree. And you can, um, that's, you can tell a lot about a corporate culture, including the compensation, just by the way they conduct interviews. If you walk in for a $100,000 annual job and you have the job five minutes later and 30 minutes later sitting in a cubicle filling out forms – there's probably a bigger problem that you walked into, right? Now, Murphy's alive and well, but, it, you know, again, Dave Ramsey's group, no matter the job, they typically take around six months to identify that perfect person for the role. And they're notoriously difficult to get hired on, but they have an amazing corporate culture. If you have a personal, you know, horrific life experience or whatever, you get paid time off, you get extra unscheduled paid time off, you get support, you get this. It's, it's He's truly trying to build a family, and that comes across through all of his employees. You know, I've gone to... Three or four different Dave Ramsey events in the states, you know, and read all his books and listened to his podcast, and I love the guy. But when you go to his corporate events, even at these big arenas, every employee is an ambassador of the Dave Ramsey brand, and every employee, no matter what their role, loves that company. And you know what? I would take twenty five thousand dollars less in a job offer just to have that yes. familial type corporate culture, just to have that lack of baloney, lack of politics, lack of drama. Because I know myself, and I can't stand any of that. I hate working in organizations, you know, understanding the corporate culture is survival of the fittest, right? I get it. Capitalism works and competition is great. I'm all for it. However, I want to work with a team, right? Like I want to be a team guy. And so communication has to occur. And if I even suspect in an organization that communication isn't there, it's not going to be a good fit for me. Absolutely. Spot on, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think it really does come down to more than just the compensation and incentives. And I mean, I know that, again, we've talked about that in tonight's podcast, and 
trying to help people understand how it's determined or how you should evaluate it going in. But when you're looking at a company, it goes back to our previous podcast, you take all of that in consideration and then compensation may or may not play as a major factor in your decision process. But there are there are websites that are out there. Again, we talked about organization, but there's websites out there as well. Salary.com, Indeed.com, Payscale.com. They're all websites that are designed to take the studies that they've received. And a lot of times it's by employees that are actually filling out those surveys. They reach out to you and you fill it out and everything, and they keep that within their benchmark analysis. But they're usually fairly close, and they do take in consideration the geographical boundaries as well. But there's also another one called Glassdoor.com, and I can tell you that you can learn a lot about an organization through Glassdoor.com because not only is it the employees that are giving their own salary for that organization and title, but they're also sharing inside secrets on Glassdoor.com about the pros and cons of working there. You can take that, again, for what it's worth because when you start doing that kind of investigative analysis, you may really learn that they're disgruntled employees or you know something of that it's just so take it all in stride as you start looking and evaluating it but there are resources that are out there and available to you to determine what your value and worth should be based on your skills and experience it's a, it's a tough it's a tough road to navigate because you know when i when i decided to that i was going to pursue the or, or allow the uh, med retirement to go through um i was my, my clock started you know and i had a year to prepare for that once once that trigger was pulled and uh, I almost said shoot somebody in the face, but I'm not going to do that this show. But anyways, uh, <laughs> um, so I got out and, and I started looking. I started uh, researching things, um, and and I was shocked at the at the ranges of different uh, compensation packages that that the companies were offering me, all to do the same exact job. Right. And, it, it, and, I, and I'll just I'll, I'll disclose it on the show. It, it was between 75 and 150k. Where the ranges? That's a pretty significant. That's a huge difference. difference. Are, are you talking about different geographical regions as well? No, no. no. Oh, okay. I'm wow. talking. I am talking exactly what I'm involved with right now, and that's working from home. I'm a business developer. I do a lot of stuff with special operations and different agencies, but there's a lot of different defense contracting companies that that support those those types of. Uh, missions and, and training and things like that but the, the the difference in the in the in the offers were so huge i was it's crazy i, I was confused you yeah. know i was like well holy hell you know do i do i do i ask for eighty thousand or do i ask for one hundred fifty thousand? i mean what's the you know and then i really had to go back and assess you know okay what do i want to do what is my value what am i worth what am i bringing to the table because obviously i want to make as much as i can make uh, who, who doesn't want to do that? But everything Scott was saying too factored in, and I want to I want to work with a company that I agree with. Well, we talked too prior to the show. I mean, one of the things about the the DOD side, or at least contract side of it, at least I know I ran into an occasion where. Uh, they wanted to take in consideration your retirement income that you were making from the military, bring you back up to the salary you were making on active duty minus your retirement income. And again, we we're talking about the transparency. So they're evaluating based on what they already know to be your personal income or the income that you're making off of the, uh, the retirement. I, I don't agree with that methodology. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, I don't always advertise that I'm retired military as well, because yeah. then that 
has its own. They think you're making mega bucks or something because of the retirement. And therefore, maybe they don't have to give you that same kind of level of compensation. Uh, yeah. So it's a real tricky subject as well. I was ins- I was actually insulted by uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bomb the company, but uh, I was insulted when I got offered on the low end, um, and it was about midway through the process. And uh, they had offered me they had lowballed me around the 75k mark, and I was like, "Wow, really?" You know, it. it but they were they were a smaller company. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they were they were offering you know something that was within their range of what they could feasibly plan on, but. Uh, uh, it was so weird, man, the differences. And it was all to do the exact same thing. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't asking for anything extravagant either. I wanted, I demanded, you know, one of the things non-negotiable for me was working from home. And, um, and you know, everybody met that criteria, but uh, the, the ranges, again, were just so different. I was, I was confused for quite a while. Well, that's, that's well, certainly some egotism in the in the corporations involved right to yeah. think that and this is who they typically deal with they deal with a person who's not prepared who yeah. will hear the number you know and people know this right i mean as a business owner if i have to pay you that means i'm not pocketing the money myself now if right. you bring worth worth value to me worth that amount i'm paying you and more great win for me if you don't that but there's a, a definite ego that most companies have as far as the idiocy of the minions that they want to hire and again that's not the company that you want to work for that's right and, and a, a very important factor we haven't touched on yet and uh is is networking and that goes back to the preparation phase and if you're properly if you've properly networked yourself then you you're you're very you, you increase your chances your likelihood of having multiple offers, and when you have multiple offers, that gives you bargaining chips for negotiation. And but if you network too, then you can also ask the questions: What should I be paid for exactly. this position? Yep, exactly. So it all goes back. Really, your compensation is based on how good your plan was, and this is something that the podcast series is developed on. Come up with a transition plan that's going to work that equals success, and all of these factors that we've talked about in every episode have an extreme you can't even put a price on the value that that has and if you apply all those factors and all that preparation you sh- you'll be able to enter the business sector prepared with a plan and you know you, you have some expectations and you can go in confidently thus uh you know getting a fair compensation yeah great closing <laughs> It's a tough one to follow, man. I don't, I don't envy you for that. Next, that was really good. So, and stop. <laughs> so knowing how your compensation is determined within each field, industry, and position, based on geographical location is the first step to finding your compensation worth. Talk to your uh, network. Talk to your mentors and friends. Uh, you'll be surprised at the information that's uh, given to you about compensation, about certain organizations that maybe perhaps they are engaged with or those types of things. But there's also industries or organizations that are able to help you with your transition and give you that type of experience. There's salary.com, indeed.com, glassdoor.com, payscale.com that are out there to help you and aid you in that process as well. 
uh, but it really comes into what is it that you value as part of your total compensation package. And when I say total package, that takes into consideration things like working from home, flex time, bonuses, paid time off, you know, whatever those things that you may feel are important to you so that you have the flexibility, your quality of life, whatever that case may be, those are the things that you want to factor into your total compensation package so that you really understand and appreciate the uh, the position and what it is that you're going to end up getting as far as the salary because the salary is only one component of it. So take the, the time, do your research, become better prepared, and the more or longer runway that you have in doing so, the better off that you're going to be.